The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Awaken to the divine within. You're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Thanks for joining me today, everybody. I'm really excited about my live guest today. Woohoo! Live radio lives. <laughs> I'm trying in my, my own small way to keep it alive. But welcome, everybody, to the show and get ready for a really fun conversation today. So as we're getting into the second week of the new year, maybe your dry January resolutions are getting a little moist. Are you uh, having a hard time with this? Oh, we're going to be talking about sobriety today and starting the new year fresh. You know, maybe you woke up New Year's with a massive hangover and you told yourself, okay, never again. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to really start cutting back on my alcohol or maybe even stop drinking altogether. And if you went into the new year with those intentions, maybe this might be the, the part of the new year where you start to be wavering a little bit, you know, maybe wavering your commitment to stop. And we're only in the second week of the new year. So we're going to be talking about this because it's such a huge problem in this country and really all over the world. And especially since COVID hit, you know, during the lockdown, alcohol sales soared, you know, over the past 18 months, you know, people were coping with this new normal with alcohol. We were doing the alcohol happy hours online, quarantinis, you know, if you're one of those people participating, hey, you're not alone. And don't feel any shame about that. But if you have been rethinking your relationship to alcohol and you need some help and guidance, you've come to the right place today. You definitely want to check out Veronica Valley and her book, Soberful. And Veronica is a former psychotherapist who now works as a sobriety coach. And yes, that is a real thing, a sobriety coach. And she's had almost 20 years of experience helping people live happy, healthy lives and reach their full potential of being alcohol-free and she has a very popular podcast you should check out called Soberful and find her online at soberful.com. So I'm happy Victoria could join me today uh, live on the, on the show. She joins me in the UK. Hi. Hi, Ver- <laughs> Veronica. I oh, get did I that. Say Victoria? <laughs> I get I that. I get that's okay. I get Valerie the most, but uh, yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm in the UK and uh, it's pretty gray and damp here so <laughs> gray and damp well i think yeah. the other reason i said victoria is we do have another host who is on previously before my show and her name's victoria so if you're listening hi victoria but i, I didn't Veronica. <laughs> so i'm glad that we're here to talk about this we did try to set another time to tape and had some tech issues and i, I really felt strongly that i wanted to talk about this issue and especially during 
what we're calling dry January, which is kind of a, a trend that we're seeing uh, year to year, people really at this time of the year rethinking their relationship to alcohol. So I guess let's start, you know, talking directly to those people who may be listening now, if you're tuning into the show right now in this space and time today, and you're really looking at it, you're taking a look at your alcohol use and what it's doing. What would you say to them right now if they're listening? Now's a good time? Yeah, I think that um, that's kind of the first clue that there may be something to look at is that people who think about not drinking, that's kind of a clue that maybe you're drinking too much because people who drink and don't have a problem, they never think about it. So, um, you know, January is a big, we all know, diet, new year, new you, all that kind of stuff. And dry January became a thing. I don't know how it started or when, but it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing when I first stopped drinking, but it is now. Um, I, I want to say it's, I, I have a little bit of mixed feelings about dry January. For some people I've met, they've kind of just kept going and it's how they've stopped drinking for some people like myself who work in this industry, it, it's kind of like I, I feel that some people stop just for January or the sober October or dry July as a way to think that like, oh, I'm resetting, I'm kind of clearing my system. It doesn't really do anything. If you just stop in January and you're drinking the other 11 months, there's not you're not really kind of gaining anything health wise, but it can give you perspective. You know, it can really give you some perspective. Um, you will feel better you know, not drinking, your your serotonin levels will, will go back up, all of that kind of stuff. So it can give people some perspective. That's an interesting take because some people may think of it as kind of a novelty or just a fun thing to do. Like, hey, I'm going to clean myself out so that the next time I go drinking, it'll be even better in their minds you know, or something like that. But maybe it can be a catalyst for people. So that that is a good thing. Yeah. You know, the other thing is I do feel, I mean, I suppose it's in response to the excess of December, isn't it? It's like we're all detoxing and not drinking. I also, the other thing is what I wonder about it is that it feels like it's sort of almost like a punishment. You know, January, we're all staying in. The weather's usually terrible. We haven't got any money. We spent too much money over Christmas. We ate too much. So we're just kind of staying in. We're eating vegetables. We're not drinking. And I kind of, my mission is to show the opposite that actually sobriety is like awesome and fun and expansive. And I don't know if dry January has that kind of ethos. Right. Not, not yet, but maybe it's a good place for people to start. It's a good place to at least start the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a positive thing. So just to tell people a little bit about yourself and how you got into this industry and your experience with alcohol and what it was doing to your life. And you share that in the book, which I really hope people pick this up because I, I thought it was just such a great read. And you had some, some tough times. I mean, you hit the proverbial rock bottom and yeah. it wasn't pretty, right? Some of the things you described were, were not, <laughs> not pleasant. Yeah. I got sober when I was uh, 27. I've been sober for almost 22 years. And so it's relatively young, but my drinking was pretty, uh, it wasn't fun. Um, I I remember being 15 years old and uh, actually in the town that I'm now in visiting my mom, uh, I was in a bar because back in the eighties in England, if you looked old enough, you could get into a bar, um, and going into blackout and waking up outside 
in the gutter covered in my own vomit with some with the landlord throwing a bucket of water over me and i i remember kind of coming around thinking this is not right and everybody around me said oh my god that was so much fun you had so much fun you are so wild and i loved that kind of image of myself and and I, my brain kind of filed that away, that that is fun. Drinking to oblivion is how I have fun. And sometimes my drinking was fun because it was, you know, for a lot of people, when we drink, the start of our drinking careers is where the most fun usually is. And there was always a cost because I always had terrible hangovers. But when you're a teenager, you don't really care about that. Um, but really, by the time I was 18, it was it was more cost and, and very little benefit. But I didn't know that not drinking alcohol was an option. In, in my culture, and, and I was in the UK and, and America and Australia are very similar. You're just, we're not given that option unless it's, you grow up in a particular religion. You're going to grow up, you're going to get a driver's license, and you're going to drink alcohol because that's what, what adults do. And that's what we do to relax and have fun and socialize. So I didn't know that not drinking alcohol was something I could do. I just thought I was really bad at managing it. And I just had to figure out the magic formula to manage my drinking so that I could drink, but not get into trouble or miss work or all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of just this miserable slog for 10 years of trying to figure that what was wrong with me. Why can't I drink? Why am I always depressed? Why am I always anxious? Why am I having panic attacks? I thinking that I had a rare mental health problem until I got sober when I was 27. And that's when everything began to change. And subsequently, the mental health problems I was suffering from began to clear up of their own accord once I wasn't putting this toxic chemical in my body. And was it at that point that you wanted to continue studies as a psychotherapist because you did go on to do that because you saw the connection, right? Alcohol is really just covering things up. Once you remove that, that blur, you know, that film on the lens, then you can really see the problems, right? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm so grateful because I was never one of these people who knew what I wanted to do in my life. I felt very lost in my twenties. I just sort of bummed around. I never like, you know, lots of people went to college and they knew what they wanted to do. I never had that. So Getting sober gave me an amazing life, but it also gave me uh, my career that I love. So uh, becoming a therapist and uh, working with clients in rehab and, you know, in private practice was just what I was born to do. I've never not been fascinated with what goes on inside of people. And I relate so deeply to the struggle of addiction. And that's very common in my industry. You'll find the majority people who work specifically with alcohol and drug problems are people in the recovery themselves. It's just part of the deal, the wounded healer part. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, so I've, uh, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years now. I'm just curious that as a therapist, I remember reading from uh, another therapist who worked with addiction, but he hadn't gone through that process. And he felt kind of indignant that people thought he wasn't as good of a therapist because he hadn't been through that. He said, I still understand people are unhappy. I still understand they're angry. I didn't have to be an addict. Yeah. I, when I, the first rehab that I worked in, um, 
my boss, Chip, who's my co-host on my podcast, he always had a therapist who wasn't in recovery because they had a perspective and a balance that perhaps we didn't have. So for sure, um, I don't think as a, as a therapist that that's essential and you, you, you know, we all have different things to offer. I think where it's helpful is really just in the engagement part. It's in the, um, you know, I don't look like someone who was an alcoholic or drug addict. And in terms of when you first have someone and they're kind of hostile and defensive, you can break that down very quickly by sharing a little bit of like, yeah, I've been sober for how many years I've felt this. And then I think it's really just in terms of the engagement part and people knowing that you know what they, they experience. But in terms of the actual therapy, I think it's right. I think that that's not necessarily the case. Uh, you, you can, you know, certainly be helpful. Right. I was just curious on that point, <laughs> if that some people thought that you had to have that as a prerequisite. I don't think really absolutely be effective. Think, yeah, no, it's not a prerequisite, but it just happens that you, I, I bet it's 90% of people in my industry. Right. No, I've heard that a lot. And just in general, the recovery movement, I wanted to ask you about because it's changed so much over mm, the years mm. for a long time, you know, AA was thought to be the only way to successfully stop drinking. And AA is certainly very successful in helping people stop. There's the data there that, that proves it, but now we're seeing other methods like, you know, to, to work with you or methods that are more focused on women. Um, I spoke with someone, a guy named Kevin Griffin, who had a Buddhist approach mm. to helping people. There's cutback coaching, you know, paid online platforms, uh, like one I've seen called Tempest. What do you think of these new modalities? Is, is it just all, it's kind of a welcome thing to give people choice? Oh, absolutely. When I got sober almost 22 years ago, there really was only 12-step programs or rehab. There really wasn't anything. I mean, the internet wasn't even really a thing. I think smart recovery was around a bit. I think women for sobriety was around a bit, but by far and away, AA dominated everything. And I think that it's it's fantastic that we have lots and lots of different approaches because it is not one size fits all um you know and and certainly in the last few years i've seen more and more people be public about their stories about stopping drinking and they're not the typical rock bottom stories it's not you know it's people who women men who look and i wanted i don't want to use the word normal but from the outside you wouldn't perhaps think that these are people who were struggling in this way and I think that that has done so much to reduce the stigma. And I think that there's lots of different, you know, having all of these different modalities is a good thing. I would just say throw in some caution there because it does feel like everybody, there, there's a kind of this flood of people who have a few months sobriety and all of a sudden sobriety coaches. I always encourage people to make sure you check credentials and licensing and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, just depending on whoever you're working with as many many you know if it's peer support just check it out don't just you know a lot of stuff is very good marketing but um i am very supportive and very happy that there is all of these different approaches because there's a lot of people who struggle with this problem right and would you say that if you want to work with someone who's a coach you'd want them to have at least like five ten eight years under their belt of sobriety 
I think I think it's a little hard to measure. I would want them to have at least a couple of years. I mean, I started as a therapist training as a therapist. I was doing training and I started working as a trainee therapist. I was about two something years sober and I was supervised and um I don't think I was having my own clients until at least three years sober. Um so because it it's not this whole deal is not just about stopping drinking. It's about the emotional work that we have to do on ourselves, the personal development work, because many of us have used alcohol as a crutch and we've defaulted to alcohol to deal with our feelings and emotions. And those learning how to deal with your feelings and emotions takes a bit of time. So at least two years, you know, I also want to say length of sobriety is by no measure of how well somebody is at all, but you'd want yeah, you want people to have a little bit of sobriety. Yeah, some solid ground. And mm-hmm. that's true. I mean, people and you can have five, six, seven years and and slip up and relapse at that point and, and get back on. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of different uh, mm-hmm. variations there. We are taking calls today, which is exciting. If you'd like to join the show, 816-251-3555. If you had a question for Veronica or just wanted to share your story. We'd love to hear from you. So I'm curious, Veronica, too, is there a big difference between a sober life coach? There must be a big difference between a coach and a sponsor. It's not the same thing. No, 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 no. A sponsor is just somebody who that that's um, uh, exclusive to Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 step programs. And they're, they're people, they're not professional people. They're people with experience of working the 12 steps he will show you how to work the 12 steps. So it's not professional at all. A sober coach, I mean, it's very, I call myself a sober coach um, just because that's an easier way to work than as a therapist. Um, but I have, you know, credentials from the UK from when I was a psychotherapist. So a sober coach, it can be, some of the training is a weekend, some of it is six months, some of it's a year. So that's what I mean about just kind of doing some due diligence about I personally wouldn't recommend working with someone who has six months sobriety who qualified in a weekend with a sober coaching qualification. I just think that's, you know, you would probably want a little bit more than that. So it varies very widely. I want to talk a little bit specifically about drinking and women, because you bring Mm -hmm. up some really great points in the book that I hadn't really thought about, but are so true concerning the marketing around women and drinking and women and drinking motherhood, you know, there's the cute little t-shirts, you know, mommy's drinking wine and things like that. And it sends some really dangerous messages that people might not be aware of. So could, what do you think about that? The mass marketing that's out there, skinny girl wine and Mm -hmm. all of the, you know, things supposed to make it look cool, especially to women. Yeah. I think it's dangerous and disingenuous. Um, you know, uh, alcohol is really related, linked to so many preventable cancers, including breast cancer. So it's, it, it, I think that I I saw someone on Instagram over Christmas, who's a wellness professional, had a coupon for clean wine. And it was clean wine, because it was made with, there was no pesticides. And I'm like, you know, the pesticides are the least of your worries. It's the ethanol that's the actual problem here. Um, and it's disingenuous to be a wellness professional and say clean wine, because this is a substance that if it was invented today, the FDA wouldn't be able to approve it. So come on. 
Um, so the whole thing about mummy needs wine, you know, that's just kind of flooded with these memes and all that kind of stuff. There's several issues with that. The first thing is I feel like it gaslights mothers in that motherhood is extremely hard and there's little support. Mothers don't have access to uh, good, well, uh, affordable childcare. You know, how we give birth in America, you know, you're just kind of pushed out of the hospital the minute you had your baby. There's, you know, there's no, there's no local support. There's just no support for parents when their children are little. So we have this kind of whole, like, it's very, very hard here, have a glass of wine. That'll take everything. You deserve it. You need it. Whereas women need real help. But I feel like this is like a smokescreen disguising what's really, really going on. And it's not serving women. It's not, no one, no one's showing that, you know, day drinking is a thing with like play dates and day drinking, but no one's showing that when the mom gets home at five o'clock after two glasses of wine, she's starting to feel tired and maybe a bit hungover, but the kids still need feeding and bathing and she doesn't want to read a story. She just wants to go to bed. And it's just, it's taking, it's sucking energy from women. It's not giving, but it disguises itself as something that adds when it's actually something that takes. And I'm not like, for sure, like, unwind, have some fun with your girlfriends on a Friday night, have a glass or two of wine. That's totally appropriate. I have no problem with that. And and women who can drink sensibly, by all means, it's the whole linking it to parenting and motherhood in particular is, I think, quite dangerous. It is. And you shared some great examples in the book, how it's also glamorized and and the true story is, is not really shown. And you, you, mentioned a great example from a series that I have seen on Showtime called Dead to Me, Mm. you know, where they're drinking and pouring out their hearts to each other, the characters Mm. in one scene. And then the next morning, she's all up and fresh, you know, (laughs) making breakfast for the kids. And and the reality is that's not the case at all. You're not just going to bounce right back. Yeah. I mean, who do you, yeah, yeah. What woman do you know who's, and they're in their forties, who's in their forties, who was drinking to probably one or 2 a.m. and has to be up and, and, and the next day is up in the kitchen at 7 a.m. So she probably got up at 5.30. So that's what, maybe four hours sleep with your hair done and your makeup perfect with a smile on your face. Do you know anyone who's ever done that ever, right? It's impossible. Hours. There's no exactly, way. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but when we, so we're there thinking, oh, when I, I'll have this glass of wine, just like this person on the TV, because, and it, the reality is that's not our reality. You know, it's really interesting. I don't know if you're watching the new Sex in the City. It's called, it's called Just Like That, but everyone yes. calls it, we're still calling it the new, we're calling it the new Sex in the City. So it's really interesting because um, that's a big thing. I'm Generation X. So that's a big thing in our circles that that show and cocktails and. Right. Cosmos. People, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were all drinking like that, thinking that we looked like Carrie and, and Miranda and all that kind of stuff. And they never really showed the consequences. And and Miranda in the 90s had a story line where she went on a date and she was very nervous and she drank too much and, and blacked out. And he took, took her home and left the phone number for AA. But I love that in the new run of this, where they're in their mid 50s, Miranda has a problem and is getting sober. And in the last, I mean, she was uh, shown reading Holly Whitaker's book. 
and um i love that they've gone down that road because that's that's real because that's the fact if you were drinking like them in your 30s the fact is that you're probably going to be miranda where you're in your 50s and it's a problem at this point it's not just there's there is a there is a price to that and i'm really glad that they showed that that's i mean it's still done in you know sex in the city it's hollywood yeah. yeah but miranda still looks fabulous but that's true you know and i love that that's great no i think that the way they're handling that is is awesome and i'm part of that generation as well so mm. we used to have cosmo parties the girls would get mm-hmm. together and watch the show mm-hmm. <laughs> and have cosmos mm-hmm. so yeah, it's, it's amazing. So on the flip side of that for men, like for women, okay, you need a drink because it's so horrible to handle your kids and all that. For men, like it's a rite of passage here, have mm-hmm. a beer, you know, you mm-hmm. got a job promotion or this, you're, you're masculine and manly mm-hmm. by the amount of alcohol that you can hold. And that's just as dangerous for men. Yeah. And also, um, it, it's very unfair how mothers and fathers are judged. You know, there's nothing in, in the world worse than a drunk mother. You know, it's like they're they're like here, they're plying mothers with wine, but not too much. Because if you have too much, then you're a drunk mother. And that is you are the worst thing. That's not as bad as being a drunk father. I mean, a drunk father is bad, but it's not as bad as being a drunk mother or a drunk black mother. That would be, that's like the lowest you could be in how we judge people. So it's, again, it's just so disingenuous, this like, put, you know, constant promoting to mothers that they need to drink to survive motherhood. But if they remotely drink too much, then they're, they're completely judged the other way. And it's not the same for men or fathers. No, absolutely not. And it, that really struck me in the book, uh, The Women of Color mm. and and how they're judged, because I, I never really thought of it that way, but you're so yeah. right you know, child protective services would be rung up immediately if someone witnessed that, you know, so there is that, that double standard as, as awful as it is, it, it does exist. Yeah. That's, uh, the judgment. That's, that's really the easiest way to, to expose this is you see a bunch of white middle-class mummies drinking and, and we can justify that. And oh, is that, you know, mummy needs wine, blah, blah, blah. Well, you replace that with black mothers, just having a daytime drink and it completely changes. Um, and, and we can see the kind of the white privilege and all of that. Right. We're going to take a break in uh, just a minute. Lots more to get to with Veronica. And I, I just really love that you're bringing this up and that you're out there to help people. And I want to send people to your site. So the best way to get in touch with you is soberful.com. Mm-hmm. I love, I love the name. How did you just come up with that? It wasn't me. It was it was someone who worked for me at the time. And I love it too, because it's all of once you get soberful, you become thankful and grateful and beautiful and powerful and mindful and all of those things. Yes. And things get to be a lot, a lot more wonderful. Life is a lot more wonderful. Mm. So people will find you there and also find your podcast at the Soberful Podcast. You can go to Apple or wherever you get your podcast. Mm-hmm download that and check it out we'll be back lots more to talk about with veronica valley stick around
Human Design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum Human Design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. All are welcome here. You're listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Thanks for coming back after the break. I'm talking with Veronica Valley about her book, Soberful. Uncover, uncover a sustainable, fulfilling life free of alcohol. A lot of people are attempting a dry January, maybe taking a look at their alcohol consumption. And there is help out there. And I definitely recommend Veronica's book. I think you should check this out. So I wanted to talk about, we were talking about some of the misconceptions and the messaging of alcohol in the previous segment mm. with men and women. And another huge misconception that we got to get into is alcohol getting us to the land, that wonderful land mm, of mm. fun, excitement, and romance. It's all technicolor. We're here in black and white where mm. it's awful, but no, you need booze to get to the good stuff. Mm. And that's just not the case. Um, you explain that we can get there without alcohol and it's actually better. We need to change this messaging. Yes, and that's kind of my primary message. And um, it's really about our belief system. And this is the struggle for people when they first begin to think that they may want to drink less or want to stop. The struggle is the belief system that alcohol is the best way to have fun. Best way to have fun, excitement, belong, connect, relax, reward yourself, all those things. So intellectually, we're like, I, alcohol's bad for me. I'm drinking too much. I don't like how I feel. But emotionally, we feel like we're giving up all of that. And, and that's devastating. I mean, that's the point of life. Who, who wants to do that? When I got sober at 27, I 100% believed that was true. And I was not happy about it. But I, my mental health problems were so bad. I just wanted peace. Like, I accepted. I was never going to have fun again. I mean... <sighs> I accepted it. I wasn't happy about it, but I accepted it. Well, none of those things were true. None of it. And I was kind of within a year of being sober. I'm like, what? Like everything is different. So that's my mission is not to tell people alcohol's bad for them and they should quit. I want to tell them that sobriety is amazing. It's more fun. It's more exciting and more adventures. It's expansive. So you can have all the things that alcohol promises, but you can have them without alcohol and it's better. I mean, that's the other thing. It's not like it's a, an equivalent. It's better. So since being sober, I've done all of the things I've uh, done, you know, I've been to nightclubs and, and festivals and all the stuff that you would do in your late 20s and 30s. Maybe I don't do that stuff now because I'm almost 50, but like all of that kind of stuff. And uh all of those experiences were way better, so much more fun than they were when I was drinking. And, and that's the thing. If none of this was fun, I would have been drunk 21 years ago. So uh, getting sober, living an alcohol-free life is, is 
much more to do with a, a shift in perception in that we perceive things differently. And that, I think, it's the hardest bit at first because that belief system is very entrenched. But with a bit of time, it begins to crumble. And what becomes clearer is the cost. It's like, it's not, you know, we have we can have fun when we're drinking and that kind of stuff. But there's always a cost. And that cost increases with age. And I think more and more people are like, well, you know, I had a good night, but I did feel a bit crappy the next day. I did feel sluggish. And I want people to know you can have a great night with your girlfriends, with you, whatever, and not have that cost. And that's the big thing, especially now. There's so many great alcohol-free options. And, you know, I was just at the weekend, I was enjoying a wonderful alcohol-free wine that was delicious and in a lovely glass, relaxing with my friend. And I, I didn't, you know, there's no missing out and there's no price. Right. And you do that cost benefit with people when you first start working with mm. them, right? Like, look, mm. this is what's costing you, you know, write this down mm. and then, and see what you're losing. And do people quickly kind of get that concept when you lay it out for them? Yeah. And I always want people to feel that, that they have, you know, that they make the choice is that that's one of the first things we do is look at the cost. It's like, okay, um, let's look at how much money you spend and, and we look at associated costs, you know, it can be cabs and take out food and miss day at work, which is, so it, it's actually more than just the price of alcohol. But the big thing is time. Let's look at how much time you spend drinking, recovering from drinking. Cause for me, the recovering from drinking was a big time. I spent more time recovering from drinking than I did actually drinking. Uh, so we can't get time back. We can get money back, but we can't get time back. Then we want to look at the cost to your relationships, you know, to your time with your kids or your family. Um, and then it's stuff like dignity and integrity. You know, have you done or said stuff when you've been drinking that just feels embarrassing or shameful? Those things are all costs. And then it's really a case of, are you getting a good return on your investment? You know, that's what alcohol costs you. And by the way, it will only increase the cost and the benefits that you're telling me. And that's when things begin to kind of shift them for people when they're kind of like, actually, that night out, now now I see the cost. Actually, it wasn't, that's a really high cost for a, like an okay night. So that, and I always say to people, you can drink. If you're prepared to pay the cost and know that that's the price, you can drink. And that, that's what people very quickly come to is like, I'm not, that cost is too high. And then it feels, and then they kind of get that kind of, I always tell people, and then the kind of like, it's like a little punch in the gut because it's like the, oh, I'm never going to have fun again. And that's the bit where I'm like, where you need, that's where you need other people is like, I know it feels like that, but just trust me with a bit of time. It's not true. That will change. We go through a grief process when we let go of alcohol, because for a lot of people, it's our friend. Right. And letting go of that can be tough. And kind of that transition period that you're talking about in the book, you use the metaphor of the bridge, you know, to go from mm. the land of alcohol to the land of sobriety and, and that, and you say that process is going to be weird and maybe uncomfortable. And, and also a lot of the people around you might not get it. And, and you have uh, categories of people. And I had to laugh because I've seen that in, in different people that I know, you know, the one that's the expert, oh, no, you're not an alcoholic or the other person that doesn't want to look at their own drinking, mm -hmm. you know, so there are those people that might be stumbling blocks 
on your road to crossing over that bridge? And how do you help people handle those situations? Yes, that's a big thing. When we when you stop drinking, other people will take it personally, um, because we generally tend to drink. You know, people we drink with drink like us. So if you are, if we're all, you know, drinking the same, and then you say, I'm not drinking anymore, it doesn't agree with me, it's not good for me, whatever you say, people immediately think, well, what does that say about my drinking then? What does that, it it makes, it does make people uncomfortable. And the pushback that people get is, um, you know, I write about this in the book, like people overnight become an addiction expert and will say like, um, uh, you, you don't have a problem. You're fine. You just need to stick to wine or whatever. It is that people are, when they're talking to you, they're not talking about your drinking. They're talking about their own drinking and they would prefer it if everything went back to how it was. So nobody felt uncomfortable. So, um, people do experience that, um, friends, cause sometimes from family, where there is a lot of pressure, their decision is ridiculed, it's, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's because people are uncomfortable with what you're reflecting to them. Now, it everyone adjusts. This all kind of, with a bit of time, it all works out. Everybody gets used to it. But initially, that can be quite a big thing, is not having anyone around who supports them and people actually actively trying to undermine them. I have a really dear friend from high school that I've, I've known for years. I see every time I go back home and we drank like fish when we were younger in our twenties. And as the group of us got older and our behaviors changed, hers is still kind of stayed the same. I'd really like to give her this book. I know she would really benefit. And in the past, when I've talked to her about her alcohol use, well, she'll agree with me. Yeah, it's problematic, but you know, then there's the comparison of, well, what are you doing? That kind of thing. Like, how would I, how would I gift this to her, I guess, and not have her flip it around on me or other people, which is usually her go-to defense. Um, Yes. It's hard. It's very hard to say to someone um, that they're drinking too much. And, and if you do do it, you also have to be prepared for someone to kind of lash back at you. Um, I always try and present it as, you know, I'm, I'm just worried about you. And here is someone who like, this isn't about drinking cause you stopping drinking cause you have a problem. It's actually sobriety is presented as this really awesome thing. And, um, you know, you don't miss out on anything and it's great for your health and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff too. So I would mail it with a nice (laughs) card and say that, but I would be prepared. Um, going back to sex in the city, Miranda gets a copy of Amazon sends her a copy of this book and she gets pissed off because she thinks Charlotte has sent it to her because Charlotte has kind of a couple of times said about her drinking and Miranda's got very defensive. That's very true. That That's what people get very defensive. And then she's pissed off with Charlotte for sending her this book and she's outraged. And then she realizes that she ordered it when she was actually blackout drunk. She actually did. It wasn't Charlotte. It was Miranda. She did it. So um, people will be prickly. Um, 
so you need to come from a like i love you i just thought that this might be something that you would find interesting because it's just a really positive take on like living a sober life but also be prepared that she may be prickly with you i'll, I'll probably get some pushback but i was mm. going to bring it home over christmas because i had a copy and i had already read it and then i didn't so i think i'm going to take your advice and yeah. mail it because I thought, okay, well, we're going to be getting together with other people. There will be alcohol there. And then here I am saying, here's, yeah. here's yeah. a sober living book at the Christmas party, you know, put down the, put down the wine. But I think maybe now, you know, the holidays are over. Let, let's take another look at it. So yeah. I like, I like that approach because you specifically say in the book, you stress, we shouldn't go in with the white coat, you know, on the horse, yeah. we need to help you stop drinking because it yeah. generally does not work. <laughs> it generally doesn't work. I had someone in my life about a year ago where I was in the position where I needed to say something and it didn't go well. It generally doesn't because people are very, very prickly about that. Um, I, that's why I just want to try and present this as a, like, we're not stopping because you have a problem. We're stopping because actually Sprite is really awesome. Right. And spin it as a positive. Yeah. And, and from those, you know, people that from your past, I mean, that you've interacted with, do you still have close friends from those days that have stuck by you and it's all yeah. okay? Yeah. You know, that's a really interesting question because uh, I'm back in England on a visit to visit my mom and do a couple of business things. And I've seen a couple, a couple of friends, not a whole lot because of the virus, but um, I have um, three really close friends from my drinking days I think everyone apart from my family I burn all my bridges so I have three really good friends who are very dear to me who I'm seeing a couple of them on on this visit um but I really had a lot of fair weather drinking buddies that when I got sober I just didn't have a lot in common or you drift away very quickly when someone's sober and other people aren't but my, I always say this to people, your real friends, your true friends will stick by you. They will understand. Um, and they will do things that are non-alcohol related. So, um, you know, that's why communities are so important, sober communities. Because I, when I got sober and I was in Florida, I didn't have any family around me. And I didn't have, uh, all my friends were fair weather drinking buddies. I had no one. And uh sober communities for me it was AA and now we have lots of other options women for sobriety is one of one I really like too um we need people we need friends we need somewhere to go we need someone to have a cup of coffee with because a lot of people have burnt a lot of bridges community is very important and women mm. friendships I mean we see how different it is at least I see from men like my husband I don't think he keeps in touch with anybody that he went to high school with or college or anything like that and I really value those friendships so like even this one particular person I I still want to stay in touch with her I mean we don't live in the same state now so it makes it easier um to you know to to maintain those things but yeah I think for women it is very important like we have to have those connections and yeah I, I do friendships yeah. yeah yeah girlfriends it's really important isn't it Yes, I agree. Mm. Well, I wanted to touch on a couple of the pillars that you have in the, we have a couple of minutes left of the show. And there's some really great points that you bring over in the book. And one I kind of want to jump to, there's five that you mentioned, movement, balance, connection, process, and growth. Mm -hmm. But I think in the time that we have left, I really found the process chapter interesting because like we talked about earlier, when 
you're studying psychology, you're really interested in why people do what they do Mm. and how things tie back to your family of origin and Mm. what you learned, you know, what the messages you learned about alcohol and things like that. How important is it to really ask yourself those questions and go through that process? I I mean, everybody has to do work on themselves, which is everybody, it's really self-reflection. It's learning the skill of self-reflection, which is to our past shows up in our present. Our past, especially our upbringing, shapes us in many different ways, good and bad. And we all have thought patterns and limiting beliefs and behaviors that are unhelpful to us that we picked up from our family origin. Now, it's not, I don't think it's possible to change absolutely everything and be perfect. But for some of us, we have you know, there's just stuff that we have to reflect on. So for me, and this is the big one for most people, it was just limiting belief stories. It was the story I, you know, told myself I had a very deep belief that I wasn't good enough. And I had come to that opinion from experiences when I was young. Some of them, you know, was no one's fault and whatever. So that stuff as an adult really affected me. I mean, it affected the outcomes in my life. It affected my happiness. It affected how I felt about myself. And that's why I drank. That's I drank because I was uncomfortable in my own skin. So once I'd stopped drinking, those feelings didn't go away. And I didn't have an anesthetic. So I was pushed into revealing, you know, I have this really unhealthy belief system about myself that I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough. And, and changing it. And, and that's the rewards of sobriety. It's that what if I just bumbled through life not doing that? I mean, my goodness, changing my mindset, changing limiting beliefs, all of that had just it had the effect of keeping me sober, but had like tons of other positive effects in so many areas of my life, including my marriage. I don't think I would have been able to have the relationship I have without doing that work on myself. So uh, there's two kinds of people in this world, people who are working on their stuff and people who are not. And you can stop that. You can spot the people who are not. So this isn't just for people with an alcohol problem. It's for everybody. Yes, absolutely. I think that everybody could benefit just from reading that chapter on process, you know, whether, like you said, whether you're dealing with alcohol or not. And, and let's just, since you touched on relationships, I mean, how much can you learn from seeing the relationships that you grew up with and the patterns that you recreate, not even knowing it. And then when you pour alcohol on some of that, it it just can be such a a horrible experience in a relationship. But then when you learn, then you can move on to have healthier relationships with, with friends and personal relationships. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a big thing for me and I see this in a lot of people, romantic relationships. I had a very toxic pattern that I just repeated and I couldn't change and was very painful. And uh, I, I had to change it. I had to, cause I couldn't live, you know, just repeating this kind of rejection and abandonment that I had from my childhood. So, um, uh, I see a lot of people struggle with romantic relationships and alcohol is such a big part of all of that. So, you know, this is the work that we're called to do when we get sober. And that's what the book is about. And the five pillars are about, it's like, what is the work? I wanted to put it in a, in a way that was really easy for people to understand and, and, and to be able to start on, um, and, and just, you know, it's enlightening and it's freeing. Yes. And it's, I just found it so interesting 
And, and it's true when you think about, especially relationships, it's part of the courting process, right? You need to go out mm, to dinner and you have mm. a drink and, you know, and I think sometimes people, when they're looking for a partner, they'll find a, that other person to keep up with them. Right. And then it becomes that codependent thing where you're both drinking and you're not good for each other at all. Mm. And at that point, you'd probably have to have to separate, you know, I don't know, I guess some people can, do you, do you see that if some people get sober together that they'll stay together or is that rare you know what i've seen everything it's really hard to you know you you have lots of people marry their drinking buddy and and then one person stops drinking and the other person doesn't and what eventually happens is is the person who's getting sober grows past them i've seen people get sober together i've seen people part very amicably and very healthily you know that's the thing when we stop drinking we will grow alcohol abuse limits our emotional growth and development because we default to alcohol as a tool to deal with life so when we don't have that we're able we we have to learn those life tools but we also have more bandwidth to grow and develop as people which is what we're designed to do we're just you know i went for lunch couple of months ago with an 87 year old lady who was recommending this book on neuroscience that she was interesting in interested in she said I don't understand a lot of it but like I'm really kind of and I was like I want to be like you I want to be at 87 still curious about things and and it's growth we are designed to grow and we really get to do that when we're sober in ways that benefit us in, in, in ways that we can't possibly imagine. That's great. And I think that the adage of you can't teach an old dog new tricks is not necessarily true. And if at 87, she's still interested and engaged in life, mm. I, I hope that my brain is, is still working at that level yeah. at that point. <laughs> I want to, I want to keep it that way. Um, well, and one of the ways to do that, you also mentioned movement. I want to throw that in while we have a couple mm. of minutes, you know, mm. maybe replacing some of those negative habits of, of drinking and laying on the couch and that kind of thing that movement is really a important part of, you know, going forward, right. In this process. Yes. Uh, movement is one of the pillars and, and I really emphasize how necessary and important exercise is for our mental and emotional health. It's just the best antidepressant that we have, but it's also about being purposeful about what we move towards and what we move away from instead of just drifting and I because often when I was drinking I felt like I drifted in life I didn't sort of I just didn't really plan where I was going I just sort of you know could plan the weekend but I didn't really have so we drift we don't we're not purposeful about this is for me and this is not for me so when we're sober we just have more clarity and again bandwidth energy space in our heads to think thoughts where we can be purposeful about what do I want this life to be about? What do I want to put my energy into? What do I want my time to be about? Instead of just kind of drifting, and because when we drift, it's kind of other elements are more in charge of our life than we are. Right. And it might take some experimentation of things that you will enjoy. Like, I love how you described where you thought if you didn't do an hour long sweaty workout that it was worthless. When look, if you can fit in a 10 or 15 minute walk Mm. on a more consistent basis or a a 30, 30 minutes of yoga or something like that, that is just as beneficial, if not more. Mm -hmm. 
yes. because you're sticking with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about being, you know, Iron Man or anything like that. It's like just walking. Whatever you can do, start there and we will feel the benefits of it. And is that what you enjoy the most now? I love a walker, I, a skier. <laughs> I am. I'm a very new skier, which I love, even though it's terrifying. Um, and I love hiking. I only really started hiking properly last year and I love it. It's a great way to de-stress and relax. Mm. I'm a big walker now too, since the, the pandemic, yeah. that's all we were able to do. So yeah. now I'm, I'm walking yeah. a lot more and, and appreciating it a, a lot more, yeah. taking the yeah. time to look at things and kind of clear my head or I'll listen to a podcast, which maybe someone's doing right now <laughs> if, yeah. they're lis- if they're listening to this show. Yeah. So, and if you think like, we're really like, I, I'm in, in England, we, I, and I, I was in Cambridge where I have a house and everybody walks and bikes. And, and that's what we were doing just a few decades ago. If you just think just a few decades ago, we were all walking everywhere. And uh, walking, I think is one of the best uh, restoratives. Yes, I agree. That's so great. I mean, I hope that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be moving a lot more. I mean, I'm seeing places like uh, in Amsterdam or the Netherlands where they bike a lot and we Mm. just don't do that here in the States, but hopefully that will change. But it's been so cool to talk with you about this. And I'm really glad that we could reconnect and get a date, you know, set up. Um, I mean, I have about two minutes. I mean, would you like to leave any other messages for people, things that you're working on? I know, I think you have a course or something that, we could talk about on your site that people would be really interested in hearing about. I do have a subscription group where I have a, where I have a, it's a monthly subscription group. It's a a community that's safe. Um, We have support calls and um, workshops and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really helped a lot of people, uh, you know, find uh, that community that's so essential and that support. Um, and I do, I have various different programs that I run. Um, I have one that's starting uh, soon on emotional sobriety, which is about doing this deeper work. Um, so you can, you know, emotional sobriety is really, you know, just being able to deal with your feelings and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, and I have free, free resources on there on soberful.com as well. There's the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And of course the book, which will be out in about a week and a half now, I think, from this episode going out on the, is it, what's the date? Today's the 12th. Yeah. Yeah. It goes out on, it's released on the 25th. So um, I'm really hoping that uh, people will uh, get a lot of insight and a lot of hope. That's what I want. Hope and that that things can change and that's possible for them. Because I'm not special and different. I didn't show up like this. I just, you know, did some of the work that's in the book. Well, I really love the work. I think people are really going to enjoy it. And I'm so happy that we could talk right before the launch. So this is perfect timing. Thank you for joining me, Veronica Valley. The book is Soberful. Please visit Soberful.com. And thank you so much for listening today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. 
It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.